Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. My name's Lucinda Carney, and I'm your host. And this week, I'm delighted to have a guest. The guest is Joe Keeler, who is the managing partner of Belbin. Now, Joe, I'll get you to explain about Belbin. I'm very familiar with the work of Belbin because I've been accredited for more years than I care to remember. Uh, but Joe manages both, the, well, it's a global business and you manage the strategic and operational activities of Belbin. Um, you're building the brand in the UK and abroad. I know that obviously you're a business leader here. You are a well-known speaker and also you're a visiting fellow at Cranfield School of Management. So there's lots more that we can get into. But actually, I suppose just for the benefit of, you know, our audience is quite diverse. Some people may not have come across Belbin. Would you like to position the business? Certainly. And can I just say it's a delight to be here. So thank thank you you very much indeed for inviting me to join your podcast. Okay, Belbin. Um, Some people find it very familiar. Some people may not have heard of Belbin. Back in the 1960s, there was this wonderful um, industrial training research unit in Cambridge, and they were looking really at how we retrain older workers, training in general, um, in the older space, it's L&D and HR, um, back in the day. And they were approached by Henley Management College, who were running, I suppose, what was a precursor of an MBA course, to find out why some teams were working really well and why some teams weren't. Right. So it all started really from this premise of why is it that some teams seem to just work? We've all been in those teams. absolutely. That everything just clicks. Mm. And why some teams are just painful. The person who was running the industrial training research unit was a wonderful lady called Dr. Eunice Belbin, OBE. And so she got a team of people together to go and investigate what makes a team really effective. And part of that team was her husband, Dr. Meredith Belbin. Ah, okay. So the the wife was... As always, as always, it is the woman. No, it's a bit (laughs) flippant, isn't it? But yeah, they worked together as a fabulous team. I didn't realise that. Yeah, and she was an anthropologist, actually. So what was great, she had Meredith, who was a psychologist, um, along with a great team. We had um, somebody who was the British chess champion. We had another person who was, again, an anthropologist who specialised in studying tribes in Kenya. It was a real diverse group of people who went to Henley over a nine-year period studying and analysing everybody who was taking part in this training, which involved an element of teamwork. They found that the most successful teams, the ones who had the most diversity in terms of behaviour, and they identified nine different behaviours, nine team roles, Belvin team roles, that if you have access to all of those behaviours, your team is going to be more successful. And of course, that's when you say have access to them, it's not about saying that everybody has to have all nine of those roles. It's having, it is oh, the beauty of a team because we don't, we're not all good at everything, are we? Do you know, I, and I wish, I wish they'd tell people that at a younger age, actually, is that there are these nine team roles. We all have bits of them, but there's about two or three we have real strengths in. We have two or three which are okay and two or three, to, you know, we really just need to delegate to somebody <laughs> yeah, else. Yes. Absolutely. And we play different hats 
depending on what's needed. So actually, what they found is also the most effective team size was four. Okay. Um, and so people were playing different hats as and when the team objective required it. So again, you're not saying you've got to have 19 roles, oh, everybody with just one role in there. So it's yeah. still a level of fluidity in terms oh. of effectiveness. Well, we have to, don't we? Because we don't want to really pigeonhole people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a case of I am A. You're saying, well, this is me, I'm Joe. These are my strengths. And I'll make sure that I'm using them as and when it's appropriate. And Absolutely. if everybody has that conversation, then the team does have that fluidity and it's able to react more quickly to the environment. And it's also able just to... It's a difficult one, actually, but the leadership aspect of it also be- is negated because in a really true high-performing team, that becomes shared as well. So lots to it. So it's not about driving people. So, so, so that's lovely. So it, was came, it came out of a research piece. Absolutely. From- Nine years of just studying people in, in these teams. In these themes. Yeah. So... Um, in terms of uh, the, the business and how it's it's used, Belvin, I guess it might be worth you sort of giving me a little bit of an overview of the teams and, and you, as, a, as a global business, how people use it as well. Do you know, that's the, that is the key word, use, because a lot of people think Belvin is this theory. And I've learned that, right? Yes, I can, I can um, tell you there's nine different team roles and you think it's done. The beauty of Belvin is the fact that it's a really practical tool. And I think this is why we're still here 30 mm. years down I think the it's line. really easy to apply Absolutely. And you want something. Belbin is fabulous for managers. It's great for them to understand themselves and also the team that they're managing. So you want to give the managers a language that is easy to remember and it's easy to use. So I think that's really where Belbin's been most successful over the past 30 years is it stopped being just a theory. And with Nigel Belbin, uh, Meredith's son, came in and said, you know, we can't keep writing these reports by hand let's use these new things called computers, is that we've been able to make everything online now yeah. and it's just truly accessible. So we've got Alibaba over in, in China putting it as part of their management development programme. We have Xerox in the States who use it as part of their Six Sigma programme. So wherever you are globally, I think the organisations that want to give their managers a practical tool that they can use every day, which makes a difference in business performance, are using Belvin. So... Um, I suppose I was thinking, I actually remember using back in, in my uh, internal roles uh, by selecting project teams, because I found that when we were doing a project team, it tended to be the usual suspects who would be the people who were always selected for those teams. And the downside of that was that they tended to be, over, they, had, they were involved in too many things. Thinking back on it, they would probably have been the more visible people. So they would have probably all had the same personality type. Yeah. And so you were having these... Um, teams made up with people with all the same strengths. Mm. Uh, and then and you've got to have some people with certain sort of technical skills, specialist skills mm. come as part of a project, relevant to the project. But I found we started to get some success because what we did was like the sort of 200 odd of the management population that tended to be involved in these things. By profiling them from a Belvin point of view, it then gave them extra data. And you could say, right, what we're missing is a completer finisher, which was generally what we were missing. It frankly. tends to be. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, when we could bring somebody in and, and actually... A heightened chances of success mm. in those projects. I mean, on that note, though, in terms of the demographics, are there fewer people? Are there certain team roles more popular than others in um, businesses? In businesses, that's really interesting. It depends on the culture of the organisation. Uh-huh. So we work with, say, large energy companies, for example, and you will look at the overall distribution of their team roles, and they tend to be more towards the dominant team roles, which is the shaper, the coordinator. 
and the sort of social, the teamwork and whatever doesn't seem to appear as highly. Yeah. Um, whereas we work a lot within the NHS. Lots of team workers. Lots of team workers, lots of implementers yeah. because it's the process. Yeah. It's going from A to B to C, having that lovely organised approach, being very practical, hardworking and caring because that's why they're yes. there. But less of perhaps the plant roles. Yeah. Less perhaps of some of the shaper roles coming through, which is really interesting. In fact, I was working with a team of anaesthetists that's hard to say. And they were all junior doctors, junior anaesthetists. And we looked at the profile and there wasn't a single plant behaviour, not first, second or third. I said, well, that's quite interesting. Because I would have thought you'd needed that. If you came across yeah. a problem, you'd want to look at that innovative way yeah. around it. How do you get around that? And they said, no, we have a procedure. Yeah. I said, well, what happens if that procedure doesn't work? They said, we have procedure B, C. D, E, and it's only when you get into the higher echelons of consultants, you can then be allowed to look for different procedures where right. perhaps that plant is cultivated. Be creative. Yeah, but not right at the beginning. And for listeners there, plant, by the way, is a creative tendency yes, if you don't, if you're unaware of that. <laughs> I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm thinking then you could go the next step. So if you go into an accountancy firm, I bet they've got lots of monetary evaluators and probably more completed finishes. If we went down that thing, people you would be attracted to it. Do you know, it's really interesting you use that example because I got my fingers completely burnt once, is that I was training some people from a well-known, quite large um, accountancy um, company and I said exactly that and they went, no. And this is several years ago now. They said, no, we just want those creative plants. Thank you very much. Uh, so it depends what type of accountancy yeah. you're into, whether or not you want to creative accountancy, creative accountancy <laughs> yeah. um, or whether or not you're somebody who's doing the tax return where that attention to detail is absolutely Paramount. Yes. So and enjoy doing that sort of thing. I mean, I'm thinking about yeah. our management accountant has definitely got a monitor evaluator yes. strength that I don't have. Um, but on that note, I suppose this is interesting because maybe it takes us into slightly contentious territory. And, and we will go on to sort of HR and promoting yeah. team working in a moment. But because we in the nuances of, of, of Belbin, I'm back in the day, we are going 20 years ago when I would have used Belbin, I would have seen it as something to use internally in an organisation. And there is lots of criticism at the moment levelled at um, tools which pigeonhole, let's say, for want of a better mm, expression, mm. that, that um, explore individual differences. And also there is criticism in terms of aimed at them in terms of validity and whether or not you could use something like this for recruitment, because I've just generalised widely about different types of roles. Um, I mean, what's your view on what's the Belbin take on that in terms of... Do you know, I really wish more people would ask that question, because I think we there are so many tools out there. And I think it's important to check the validity, the reliability and... Yeah, how good a tool is it? We need to ask those questions. With regards to reliability um, and validity, we have study upon study upon study. And we are now on our seventh version of Belbin. So if anybody's using a questionnaire which they just add up and they do it with a pen and paper, you know, that that is not Belbin. We do not endorse that whatsoever. So everything that's done online, we are ensuring that our statisticians are looking at it and it's as, re uh, as relevant today as it was 30 years ago. But the key thing with Belbin is that we are measuring behaviour and behaviour changes. Yeah. So we're measuring how you feel about those nine key team or behaviours. And do you know that's going to change where you are in your career, in your life, who's manager, what culture, which organisation, your values, your motivations, all of this influences your behaviour. So with Belbin, we're not saying you are a plant. We're giving you a, we are all nine, but at the moment, my strengths are. 
The other key thing is how do you validate something? How do you know that it's measuring what it needs to measure? Because a lot of tools are just based on the self. Mm-hmm. And that is completely limited to how well that person knows themselves. Um, especially when you get people filling in questionnaires and they think, oh, what should I be? What, yeah, sh- what do they want know? me to be? What do they want me to be? What do I want to be, which is going to further my career? And you fill in questionnaires. And of course, there are sort of questions within them to check that. But even so, if you're only asking yourself something, it's going to be, you're like in this echo chamber. Yeah, you've got that frame of reference. Absolutely. So our validity very much is we say, find out your Belvin team was how you think, but actually, how useful is that? We're talking about behaviour. It's something that people interact with and they see on a regular basis. It's not your personality, which you can say is deep down, you know, who you are. We're measuring what you do. Okay. So we recommend observer assessments, which is asking for feedback from people that you know, you trust, you value their feedback, who've worked with you. So don't ask your mum. Don't ask somebody down the pub. Yeah. It's a work-based tool to ask people yeah. you work with for their feedback. Which gets over the argument, oh, I'm different at home from at work, because oh, the, where you're going to yeah. use it is at work. It's, it's, it's a about. work-based tool. Mm-hmm. So it's so important that you get people to observe you yes. in the workplace. And then all of this information, and my goodness, it's very complicated how these reports are put together. It will tell you how you see it, but then how others are seeing you. And my God, that's useful. Because that's showing you, yeah. okay, I had strengths I never knew I had. Or perhaps you are portraying to others how you think you're portraying, but you need to know that that's the biggest real validity check that yes. you can have. So um, in terms of bringing people in, what you mentioned earlier when we were talking off, off, um, off radio or off record, uh, that people are sometimes using it now in or one of your growth areas is actually people using it in recruitment. Yeah. Then. And yeah. I was just trying to get my head around... Because you've got to recruit, presumably, for the skills to do whichever job you're doing. I can see how you might use it to recruit into a team once you're in a company. Is is it actual recruitment? It is. In fact, it was first used in recruitment. So when Meredith and the team first came up with these nine team roles, they went to Cabbage Sweeps and ICI and they used Melbourne for their graduate recruitment. You've got people here who have all... I think they're looking for chemists, actually, in ICI. So they've got the best chemists. Yes that the universities are throwing at them. They've all got first-class degrees in chemistry. How do you differentiate? Right. Okay, so it's not the first thing, you know, but it's, it's a, a layer. As, as of many yeah. recruitment, you should have a variety of tools. No, absolutely. And I, I, I think I can stress that enough, actually, is that you need a multi-criteria when you're recruiting. You should never recruit on one dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, so you should never recruit on your qualifications. Because also, what is our aptitude, our attitude... All of these things need to come into it as well. And Belbin really does does help. Yeah. Um, it also helps if you already know, you're saying, you know, to Belbin about 200 people or what have you. So if you already know the culture of the organisation you're recruiting into, do you want to repeat that? <laughs> or do you want to actually look, well, Bring do some you diversity know we need in. a bit Absolutely. of diversity in here? Yeah. So it really is. It's another angle on diversity as well, isn't it? Because I think oh, a lot okay. of what's out there about diversity at the moment is... is sort of gender and, and race and, and, and other um, mm. aspects. But this is actually, you know, individual diversity. It's in our, our personalities, our, yeah. our behaviours in, in an environment. It's another angle on diversity, which Absolutely. arguably is even more important than... Um, well, do you know, areas. I think sometimes it is. Um, and there's some great studies out there at the moment looking at diversity when it comes to age as well. When you're within a team, working within a team, you need that experience. But you also need the diversity of different ways of looking at things. 
Um, this wasn't a Belbin study. It was just saying how we need diversity, not just in case, you know, the, the obvious gender, etc. The way that we behave, if we all behave the same, we ain't going to get the results that we want. Absolutely. We need to ensure we have as many people behaving in as many different as possible absolutely and then you get people who actually like to do the things that you don't like to do that's one of the best things I think about a team oh, which ultimately gosh, what this is about yes. is, is that you know we can all play to our strengths and I'm happy to go and find the chat to the strangers and bring people in as long as you don't make me dot the i's and cross the t's and it's yeah. it, it's whereas someone else would feel the worst thing in the world we'd be going and talking to strangers or doing podcasts but they're perfectly happy to to do stuff yeah. like that and, and that's that's the beauty of it really is getting the opportunity to once we know our strengths to play to them. Sort them, absolutely. I think Gallup say, don't they, that if you play to your strengths at least once a day, you're six times more likely to be engaged. But we need a language to find out what those strengths are. We need yeah. to be allowed to have those strengths. Interestingly, though, it's what I find is that it's wonderful that you can have, there's all these nine and you can have strength, but sometimes you do actually need to be a completer finisher. Yes, I find. You've got to make yourself. You can't say, well, I'm not that, yeah. therefore I'm not doing it. Um, it you, can't be an excuse. You can't, no, exactly. You can't use it as an excuse, but at least you know what kind of behaviour is required and you can get support from people going, look, I'm being a bit of a completer finisher now. This needs to be 100% accurate. I don't want anybody to contact me. I want your support. You know, give me tea, give me biscuits. Yes. I'll reward I myself to for do finishing this. something. Absolutely, yes. because what you're doing is you're valuing that behaviour, which again is back to that diversity, mm-hmm. diversity piece. You may not have it, but you value the impact and the importance that it has within the wider team. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that is the truth with almost any personality pieces. Sometimes you hear people using it as an excuse, I can't do that because I'm a yeah. ISTJ or whatever, you know, whatever personality tool Absolutely. you have. Absolutely, yeah, that's, I'm blue. That's, yeah. Yes, that's just, yeah. um, that, that's an excuse, that's nonsense. We've all got responsibilities to do jobs to the best of our capabilities. It's just that some things come more easily. I did a podcast a few weeks ago, actually, um, on the strengths-based organisation, and this resonates. I mean, those are different types of strengths where you might look at, you know, these, these are particularly team role strengths that we're looking at when you're working with others, and it's about collaboration. Mm. And that was looking at, you know, other aspects, all of which I find really fascinating. Okay, so I guess that's been quite a lot on Belbin, but um, when we originally started talking, we were, you know, there was a real affinity between stuff that I know you've been presenting on, um, Joe, in terms of how HR can make a greater difference in the workplace. Um, the whole principle of the HR uprising is about helping us to add more value, be more strategic, and be more collaborative. Uh, what's, what would your take be on that in relation to the I guess, your yeah. Belbin hat? No, absolutely. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think since I've been in this role for about 18 years, it's always been talked about the fact that HR needs to be seen as more aligned with the business and needs to be more strategic. And I think it's difficult. Um, But nowadays, I think we are finding that organisations are flatter. And there is a lot of research out there, which from EY, from Deloitte, that really looks at the importance of teams and not just individual teams like a project team, but networks of teams. And it also talks, the latest report looks at the symphonic C-suite. Okay. Which sounds awfully grand, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound amazing? Yeah. Um, But it's talking about it because it's saying, actually, when we're talking at that board level, at that high level, the senior leadership teams... Are they teams and are they true teams going downwards? 
if we're going to embrace teamwork, and I'll come to a point with the mm. HR element in a minute, we need to ensure that it's not just teamwork in the middle, it is actually teamwork also at the very top. Actually, that's probably one of the things that is often absolutely ignored, almost overlooked. Isn't and it just? And then that, that sets the whole tone. It does. It's not just this senior leadership team where you have your CEO, et cetera, et cetera, just there. They're not really a team, to be perfectly honest with you, because, well, they are a team, but you can debate that. It's the teamwork that they're teams that need collaboration. And the key thing, I think, is where HR comes in, is if you've got all this network of teams right at the very top echelons of organisations, what you do need are people connecting those teams. And I think that's where HR Mm -hmm. comes in, actually. I think it is that connector between all of these teams that are working so that there's shared learning, there's shared values to ensure that HR is seen not as somebody you go to, but somebody who is connecting different parts of the business to ensure that that business objective is is being met. And in, in, if you're thinking, if, if, you, if an HR person's listening to this, and I guess, have you seen where that has, has happened? Or how would, you, how would you say they can do that? Or Yeah. You see, it's easy, isn't it? The theory. Yeah. How do you actually make it happen? I would also say that there isn't a magic pill that suddenly makes this happen. I think that HR have a hard job because what they are dealing with, they're the ones who are dealing with the people, the humans. And by its very nature, that is difficult. And they're less predictable than a process or anything like that. Yeah. No, absolutely. If you have a process, you can stick to your process. But you can't just say... Happy as you almost certainly can't stick to it. You can't. And these relationships take time. And I do think it's something that doesn't say, right, we're going to start doing this now. It is an HR professional making themselves invaluable as that connector and almost doing it by stealth. Yes. Um, And many, many years ago, I was speaking to the HR director and I said, well, how did you manage to do that? Because they were very much looking at the way they allocated work, how they could become connectors. I said, how did you do that? And they said, well, we kind of started making the right, asking the right questions and we were getting a lot of negativity back because nobody likes change. So so we just did it anyway. And they were very successful. So he made himself invaluable to certain teams. Right. Then he communicated to the teams what everybody else was doing. And then everybody thought, wow. That's useful. That's useful. And HR is being an integral part of everything that we're doing. It's not just a standalone function. So that, so what we're saying is, he, he, although he, he sort of asked permission and people didn't think they necessarily wanted it, but yeah. he just got on and went, okay, on, so it. what's going on this team? I'm going to share this information. When he just got yeah. out, talked to people and yeah. was, Network. was a collaborative change agent. Absolutely. Um, that, but that with, that, with the HR hat yeah. on. So yeah. it wasn't that people were going to an HR function. No. The HR function was going to, to the them. people. Absolutely. And I think that really was for them, you know, it, it worked very well. Isn't it? So on the car driving up here, I was listening to Steve Brown's book, which is HR on Purpose, and he was talking absolutely about the whole thing about you can't do it from your desk. No. If you've got to get out and be human absolutely. and talk to people. And then there's yes. natural, and if you've got a collaborative mindset, then you can make connections. But you yeah. can only make those connections if you've been listening to what's really yeah. going on for people. Yeah. And you've got to make yourself valuable to people. Yes. Um, actually, Meredith wrote this. I mean, crikey, his books... There's some real nuggets in there which are still so valid, valid um, today is that he talks about management. And he said management's hard because you're there, you're delegating work to others, but you take the responsibility mm-hmm. most of the time. But you're also responsible for the well-being of, of your team. He said it's really hard to do too 
what you need as a manager. And he said, you then need, I can't remember how he put it. Um, he related it to the film. You've got the film director, then you've got the casting director. That's it. And it's, you need the casting director to help the individuals within the team with their careers, to check you've got the right people there for the recruitment aspect. And that's where HR comes. You are the, almost the yeah. casting director for each of these teams. So it's the people aspect and the human aspect yeah. you're bringing into those teams. Where, and, and that's interesting. It just feels like there's parallels where you've seen stuff where it's hard to have a performance conversation and a career conversation, yes. the same thing. They're different hats. So they you, are. So if you are a manager trying to do both, mm. it's hard, or certainly it's very hard in the same conversation. You need to separate the purpose of, of those conversations. Oh, but absolutely. HR can help with that. Yeah. human aspect and I think having that um that twosome if you align yourself with a manager or somebody within a team you're like their right hand man yeah woman um and as they're going well, I, need, I need a team to do this this and this you go well actually fine so you've got those people there that would fit but why don't we bring someone you know they're yeah. all they're all shout at each other because they'll all want to be boss so let's make sure we bring someone in who's going to make the tea and be a bit supportive and harmonize it or you you see that sort of yes. overall Absolutely. In terms of how people interact yeah. together. Yes. So I think it's very much HR going to yes. these network of teams, getting them to understand, making them sort of network, share um, information, share knowledge, share learning, and being a real invaluable part of each one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's recognising behaviours. And then I think the key is, so if there is someone out there listening, and it doesn't necessarily matter, and Belbin is a great model to use, but just appreciating how people differ and having a language Absolutely. for that is yeah. the key to be able to see that of those are, they're all too similar. They're too much similar yeah. stuff yeah. is not going to be conducive to the outcome we need. We need to have some, mix it up a bit. So we have to see that people bit which not all managers would see. But no, absolutely, because they're too close to it. I mean, HR, Cracky, you're in a really wonderful position is that you can take a really objective viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And if the more you get, you can talk strategically and go, well, this team's going to be doing this. Where does that link with the overall strategy? Blah, blah, blah. And so you can really become a more intrinsic part yes. of that organisation. Is there any sort of way when you're talking about the, this sort of linking between teams? So I could see... The sort of description we talked there, it's almost like the HR person was almost the communicator or the messenger. Mm-hmm. Is there any other way in which you've come across people effectively getting teams to collaborate? Oh, that's an interesting question. I just wonder whether you'd formally get people together or um, have a yeah. team within a team. Well, to be perfectly honest, the, today's working environment is really flexible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And we all have different um, working hours. Some of us work from home, it's virtual and everything. And sometimes we don't know everybody who is within the team. What we recommend if you're looking at the team or the wider thing is that everybody does get together at least once. And then you can find out who is available, where, who they are, what their strengths are. So, yeah, I think actually that's a key point, isn't it? It's not just your immediate team, the wider picture. Well, you need to meet everybody. It's, it's like a ripples, isn't it? Being it aware is. that if you're all operating in isolation, you might be doing a yeah. good job, but there could be a bigger absolutely value and, yeah. and you might borrow someone from a team or anything sporting analogies <laughs> it's got a certain skill yeah. set yeah. but you've got to have awareness that they're there and that's that no, sort of thing that awareness in fact we work with a um a creative company and in in their london hq and i think they had about 100 people um working with them all on these wonderful project teams um with the creative agency coming yeah. up with adverts 
And they found actually that their project teams were just taking, they were just one, they were just argumentative, um, and also just taking too long to deliver because nobody really knew who was in, and it was about an ego job title who was available, who wasn't off sick, as to who was in that. So they had a whole, sorry, this has just reminded me actually, they had a whole event where everybody came together, everybody did a bell bin yeah. with observer assessments, everybody shared and used the language for the whole day, and then they put the projects together based on, right, at the beginning we need the plant resource investigator ideas. Yeah. Then we need the monitor evaluators to check it's the right one. Then we need the implementers to put the plan together, so on and so forth. And they use that as a framework. But what was wonderful is what they were finding, actually, is a lot of the time at the very beginning, they were coming up with an idea. And then because that team role was still associated with the project, they'd get halfway through and they'd go, actually, I've had another idea. And everybody would just groan because all of the work that they had done, yeah. <laughs> suddenly like, oh, my goodness. Because they knew they only had a limited amount of the plant resource investigation of their idea behaviour, they freed them and said, right, once you've come up with it, go and work for another project. And that was right. But they only knew how to do that because they'd all looked at it as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I would say other tests are available. Um, yeah. But they had, you know, put it as a whole and they were able to use the language. It's like, can you stop being, say, plant, go over there. Yeah, go, go give them ideas. Yeah. We're, we're doing something. Uh, we need the monitor evaluation. Now, that could be the same person. It doesn't have to be a different person, but they could take that plant hat off yes. and put the monitor evaluator plant on. They knew which behaviour was acceptable at that point of the project. I mean, that's something that I've commented on when I'm looking at um, embedding change. And I've talked about which... Uh, if, you, if you take Cotter's model of change and eight steps going through, the certain roles, team roles, are really helpful at the start, getting things going, yeah. getting the ideas and things like that. But actually, they could be quite destructive later on when you, what you need to do is just crack on and embed yeah. it. Yeah. And so, and, and also, they're bored. Resource investigators, they want to go and do something else. So actually give them permission to go and be valuable elsewhere in Absolutely. another team. Absolutely. And I think, you know, HR could use that and say, right, what is your part within the team? Well, you want to be looking at the broader overview. Yes. You don't necessarily want to be getting into the, the detail of what these different teams are doing, but you need to have that more strategic, broader overview that, and have that sort of calm and confidence that people can go to you. So you're playing more the coordinator role. And making sure they've got purpose is one of the things oh, I think crikey. that often takes them off a lot, isn't yes. it? Because um, that's where we all kind of people argue, they go, right, what are we here to achieve? And making sure whatever the composition of the team, that everyone has clarity about what they're there to achieve. Do you know, thank you for mentioning that. The amount of phone calls, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, the amount of phone calls that we get saying, right, our team isn't, isn't you know, can you come and help yeah. us? And we say, certainly, what is the team there to achieve? And then you just get silence because there isn't the clarity of what yeah. is it. To be or, a team. I, I know, <laughs> it's, I know, it's a bit team building. Well, that's all well and good, but yeah. a team isn't static. It's yeah. something that is constantly evolving. Yeah. It should be agile and it should only be together to achieve an objective. Then it's kind of disbanded in a way. Very often we find that there's one person with clarity over the objective. Nobody else really knows or they think they do. And this is why there's problems. Yes. So teams should only be put together if they've got something to achieve what is the objective? What are the timelines? Yeah. Where's it? All of these questions really do need to be asked. I think sometimes that could even be the role of HR or yes. L&D to ensure that they've got that. Yes. 
almost it's almost like the principles of setting up a successful exactly. team yes the ground rules that you know Absolutely. if you're going to do that this is what you you need to do go through their purpose everyone's in that if you're going to do a team roles piece make sure everyone understands what the yeah the language of the team roles so then you can say actually now we need to switch into this mm. type of thinking mm. Uh, yeah. and, and then everyone's sort of aware, as, as opposed to operating unconsciously, they're aware of what they're there to do and why and they're doing. And why not set those teams up to succeed as opposed to have to be called in because yeah. you're dealing with conflict, um, all manner of things that happen when teams don't perform. If you set those guidelines up right at the very beginning. then that, And that's, that's the best way, the most effective way. But on just. that note, going on, on conflict, so what would be your guidance if you're um, an HR professional in an organisation or L&D and um, someone's come to you and said, right, we've got a dysfunctional team, it's just not working, what do we do? Solve it. Solve it in two minutes. Magic wand. Yeah, come on, HR, you know what you're doing. I love the assumptions that people mm. make that you can just walk in. I mean, HR, their expectations are yeah. so high, aren't they? Mm. Or high of them. Yes. Um, what would you do? Check the objective of the team. Are they a team or are they just a group of people? I think that's a, a key thing. When it comes to conflict, it's looking at the different behaviours. And very often conflict does arise when people don't appreciate difference. And it's the valuing and appreciating and understanding difference. We talk about team role opposites. So it could be the fact that you have that resource investigator who's high energy and energetic, sociable, knows everybody, lots of ideas. And they're working really closely with somebody who perhaps is really high implementer. So he likes process, likes things done, and perhaps a bit of completed finisher in there as well to a really high level of accuracy. Well, of course, they're going to really... Potentially conflict, yes. 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 They really aren't, and that's where particular conflict comes in, unless they appreciate and value the difference that without the other, they cannot do so well. So from an HR perspective, it's it's very rarely, I think, the fact that they just don't, it's not not liking each other. Mm. It's not appreciating, understanding the other person's perspective. It's like putting yourself mm. into those shoes. And not understanding the value of the different team roles at different stages in terms yes. of achieving the objective, I guess. Absolutely. But it's always the objective. Sometimes people don't really know what they're doing. Mm. Mm. Um, the other key thing, and this was in Google's um, Aristotle project, was teams to be really successful, they needed psychological safety. Um, they needed trust. And trust doesn't happen overnight. And I think sometimes, right, do you trust each other yet? Right, on. Yeah. no, people need to feel, and when you talk about trust, what does that mean? It doesn't mean they can like, keep secrets or anything necessary. It means that if you mess up, it's okay. Yeah. You, you're allowed to fail. Um, you can take responsibility for that failure, yes. but you are allowed to fail. And also, it's really key that when people say they're going to do something, they, they do, do it. it. They say it, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of conflict, um, aside from the people just being very different, does come from people not doing what they say they're going to do. But normally, the reason for that is that they don't understand why they're doing it. And the wonderful work that's being done on millennials or Generation Z or wherever we're up to at the moment is this bit is becoming more and more important, is that we are doing work that has meaning. We understand where where the work that we're doing slots into the immediate picture, but also the bigger picture. And you need that within a team. That all comes in, that sort of psychological safety. Then you're kind of motivated. You're working towards a bigger, a higher purpose, a bigger purpose. Yeah. So sometimes when it's a, you know, the team isn't performing, it's not always because, oh, we're just not getting on. No. There's more to it. So it's asking, 
the questions. It's asking the questions of what are you here to achieve? Do you know what work that you're doing, which is going to be useful for this team to actually achieve it? What is your role? When do you need to be called on? And then really embracing difference. Or if you've got a team of just high shapers, just appreciate the fact that you are going to, um, there'll be blood on the walls at some point. Yeah, you're just too, yeah, yeah. too similar too and, and, and too, all got that sort yeah. of... Um, and, and actually, that could be an effect. You could have a, um, a team of high team workers who who might, no one's going to necessarily want to take the lead and mm. push... There's, there's any of them, anything where we're all too much the same may no, not No, we work. don't want too much of the same either, no. no. It's interesting that I was thinking an HR role, I think, also can be, going back to your point earlier, where you said that um, people not keeping commitments, that can, mm. that can be something that if you're in a team, you've... Everyone knows where they're going. You've got the objectives, you've got the purpose. And then I don't do the bit that I said I would do. Yeah. And that can really irk people, A, because it affects the success of the team. Yes. But it doesn't seem fair if others aren't seen to be putting yes. their weight. Yeah. And some people have very strong values about commitment. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I think one of the reasons that that can happen, um, I mean, it, it may be that the person hasn't taken their commitment seriously, so that you can deal with through ground rules and talking Absolutely. to them, feedback. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's because, and my, and my earlier point is, they're in too many blooming teams. Yeah, it's the same person's in everything and they actually just haven't got the capacity. No. So so I, HR, I think, sometimes can also take a step back and go, yeah, we've just got too many projects going on at the moment. Absolutely. Let's, let's prioritise yes. them. And yes. it's taking that step and having that bigger picture. Do you know, it's wonderful you said that. Last week we had a meet-up for some accredited people, which we have, you know, and they were saying exactly, how do we... Because a lot of these people were, you know, in HR and L&D, and there was um, somebody suggested, actually, one of our trainers, is that if you just get these projects and put them on the wall and you stand in the room and you work out who's going to be part of each project, timelines and everything else, if you do that just in one room yeah, and you just say, oh, they're, name- oh, they're over there as well, or oh, their names appearing over here, and then suddenly you realise, my goodness, that's why they're not delivering. delivering. Yeah. It's because they're having to... But you need to make that visual because sometimes you mm-hmm. can't see mm-hmm. it. And they had all the project plans up on all of the... And then and that goes go back to that yeah. point we talked about earlier, which is actually, why is that one person, the person that everyone goes to, do they have very specific skills, in which yeah. case we need to build more people with those skills? We need skills, to duplicate them. Or is it just you. that they happen to be very visible as having those skills? And so they're the first person that comes to mind. And, and the way in which we build project teams is the board say, we need to, we need to project X and, oh, you should put him, him and him or, on, on yes. that particular project. Yes. And we should yeah. look wider at the catchment and be growing more people who can contribute we to projects. We should. We should. Otherwise, succession planning all goes to pop mm. because what happens when that person leaves? And you learn so much from being on a project as well, though. That's the other thing. I think Gosh. actually um, helping people Don't to get involved in them earlier. Yeah. I, I think, again, by using the behaviour or whatever language, if you use the language of Melbin, yeah. you're not going to be doing that on seniority, job title, ego. Very often, it's somebody has to be seen to be on a team. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's again, that's that. No, just 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 look at what is it that they're trying to achieve, to achieve there. Okay. Yeah, purpose. Yeah, um, with the whole sort of uh, virtual team, do you see is any difference in building teams with, with when we're talking about virtual teams? The key difference with virtual teams is communication and this trust. Um, we have looked at virtual teams, and Belvin is as relevant. Um, as it always has been. But I think the manager has a harder task with virtual teams. I think it's, it, and it's worth investing time in, is that when you have a team which is in situ, 
you take for granted those social interactions. You take for granted so much. And when we suddenly go virtually, we don't build that bit in. So therefore, the trust doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And trust happens when you get to know people, when you work with them um, over a period of time. You have to work at trust. Yes. So, and it does help if you have met face to face at least once, just to have that rapport. Absolutely, and all of the studies agree with that. They say meet at least once, and also I can't remember who it was. They're telling me that his somebody who's recently accredited was telling me his wife works, I think, in their pharmaceutical company, and they all work virtually. But they have a Friday afternoon catch up, and it's once a month, and they have Friday afternoon, and they all get onto Skype, and they are not allowed to talk about work. So it's human. It's human because that is the key point. So it becomes trans because it can, otherwise it's very oh, transactional, isn't it? You're absolutely. Straight, you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, if you get on a call on a Skype or something, you're more likely to go down to work. You're much less likely to go. How are you? How are the kids? Whereas if you meet someone face to face, you feel much more likely to have that. Do you know? Yes, yes, you are. But you need to build that time in, mm. and you need to value it because the chit chat that you have in the kitchen, you just see is. But actually, that's really valuable. Um, the other key thing is if it's virtually and you're talking about global teams, which we work a lot on, is really be sensitive to other people's times in the time zone they're in. Don't yeah. always do it on a Friday afternoon. You may want to do it on a Friday morning. Mm. Be aware of other cultures. Check that that particular day is a day which is available to everybody. You have to work at it. But yes. my goodness, the, the rewards are still there. Virtual teams are fabulous. And actually, do you see any differences being the global piece in mm. terms of the way teams operate or team roles yeah. operate? Yeah. Do you know, globally, it is fascinating. And right. this is what I love. Because um, all around the world, actually, our, our attitudes towards teams and team working is very different. So we work a lot in China, where they do have a very collective um, approach. Teamwork to them is quite natural. Why wouldn't you work with others? As you can tell from a culture, of course it would be. Whereas you're going over to the States, it's a little bit, little bit more individualistic. Yeah. It's all about, a bit more about me. I mean, it's changing, actually, but I think those companies that really do value the teamwork, they're embracing it, and it's great. But there are differences in attitudes towards teamworking generally, globally. But what we've found, we've studied and looked and analysed all of the data which we have um, of all of these countries, and do you know, from a distribution point of view, there's very little difference in the behaviours of teams globally. Right, so, so you still have the same yeah, range of... Absolutely, not one's... Not, there was nothing of um, statistical significance. significance. Okay. Um, what was interesting is what did become statistically significant um, were the words that people were using as these observer assessments. You know, I said people feedback on others, so it's not just your viewpoint. And they found that the words that people were using to describe their colleagues, there were real differences there. Um, and you could tell that Europe and America, we've got quite an established way of doing things. Yeah. And so the words were like conscious of priorities, um, caring, which was nice, um, consultative. These words were appearing really high. And they were in China as well. But the other ones in China were the eagerness to learn, willingness to adapt. Well, they didn't come up at all in the US or in the, at least in the top 10 or in Europe. Is that because it's assumed Europe. then or it's not important? I mean, we don't know. Yeah. But I think they are a culture which is very willing to soak in as much yes. information from the rest of the world as possible. And they're not, they don't have as much structure, which means that they are straight jacketed to always do the same thing. They have got a little bit more flexibility in changing their working cultures. So 
Do you know, it's just fascinating. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> now, I suppose in terms of getting towards the end of what we're talking about here, one of the things I thought I just wanted to come back to, which, which appealed to me, because there's a whole school of thought which should talk about putting putting the human in HR, which people love or hate. Um, but I love your, your very much about say human is the strapline. Oh, yes. And to talk a bit about what what that means to, to Belbin in terms of your positioning, I suppose. You're using the greatest showman. This is me as your... No, absolutely. And I think this is why it is quite nice. Um, Sometimes with all of procedures and tick boxes and everything, we forget. I mean, HR doesn't, because that's why HR do such a fabulous job, is that everybody is a human being. And we need to stop forcing human beings to, I don't know, be of a certain mould. We need to embrace the fact that we are all different we need to understand and get feedback to understand who we are. Um, we need to have this as a constant learning journey. And we need to use humans and we need to use their strengths. It's so important. Um, you feel like you're preaching to the converted when you're talking about HR and mm. learning and development because they are the functions that do talk about humans. But it's difficult. Do you know, though, I was just thinking about this, though, because sometimes we get accused of being overly processed or into compliance and there are different bits of it. And I, I was thinking there, maybe there is... A sort of that whole classic that, that the shoemakers' kids have holes yes. in their shoes. Yes. Actually, if you're an HR professional and you're lucky enough to be in an organisation where there are other HR professionals, what are the Belbin types or personality types of you and your colleagues? Because there will be teams within teams that oh, you can absolutely. draw on other people who will find it much easier yeah. to go and do. So, for example, talking about HR as a networker and between mm. teams, mm. not every person is going to feel comfortable doing that so is there someone who yeah. could take that responsibility on whereas someone else might be better at standing back and taking the analysis of have we got too many Absolutely. project teams going on yeah. so thinking how you can collaborate with your HR team and if you're a standalone HR person how can you leverage the skills either within your mm. organization or outside of the organization yeah. to your skills because actually if you stand alone you know, you can't do it all on your no, own. No, you can't. I mean, very often you have to. Mm. Um, and then you'll find that those bits that you don't enjoy so much do keep going towards the bottom of your to-do list. Yeah. We tend to gravitate doing things that we enjoy doing, don't we? Um, I couldn't agree more. I think it's using the fact that we are different. And HR, crikey, it's such a catch-all sort of title, isn't it? You've got HR, are you talking about grievances? Are you talking about pensions? Are you talking about training? I mean, yeah. crikey, HR covers so many different yeah. disciplines, doesn't it? Um, so it's really important, yeah, that the best people are doing the right things. And if somebody always struggles with that grievance, with that sitting down and having to do that, it could be because their team roles aren't adapted. You know, your yeah. behaviours, personality aren't suited towards that. So get somebody else to do yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Work with it's, someone else to help with that bit. Yeah. Because we are all... Ask for help. And, 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 and let them leverage other people's strengths because you can do that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. But we need to know what they are first. And again, so having a framework <laughs> is, is a great way to do it. Yes. And I suppose on that then, in terms of, uh, obviously, on every time we do a podcast, mm-hmm. we put, we'll put we put links to your site and, and yes. any useful um, key links, re- references, where we've done reference materials, so yes. people to, to look at. Obviously, people can contact you if they want to know more about Belbin. There's quite a bit on your website, which explains the roles. Yeah, there's quite a bit. They find me on LinkedIn. Um, we have a, a, a great team here, so at any point of contact, we will be able to help. Great. Lovely. So, Joe Keeler from Bel- uh, Belbin, thank you very much for being guest on, um, on the HR po- oh. 
Oh, oh my god, I have to cut this out. We've, we've, we've both admitted we've not had very much sleep last night, so uh, we're just about home, home together. So thank you so much for being a guest on the HR Uprising podcast. And uh, I look forward to understanding more about and where you're going with wellbeing. And it's really great to re-engage after 20 odd years and, and seeing so, so much exciting stuff happening. That's wonderful. And thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. And um, actually, it's got me thinking about a few things. So I'm going to be off now and do some more Excellent. research. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> hearing what you come up with. <laughs> thank you. Fab. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.